Welcome to the Chosen Brew Beer Podcast. My name's Ian McNally, and this is the podcast where guests talk their way through the six beers that changed everything. In this very special episode, I interviewed James Smith from The Crafty Pint, and the episode was recorded live from Burnley Brewing in Melbourne. It was such a great experience and so great to have so many of you there as well. If you didn't manage to get there, you can visit thechosenbrewau.com. Uh, there's some pictures on there. Thanks so much to Stu for being the official photographer of the night. And you might also catch them on Instagram and the Facebook page as well when I get around to it. As with all of these things, when you're moving house the same week that you've got your first ever live podcast... There was a technical issue. Uh, I'd love to say it wasn't my fault, but I forgot to press record. Thankfully, I realised before James started going through the beers that changed everything. We got there to press record just before choice one. So this episode picks up just as I realise I haven't been recording the first 20 minutes or so. If you were live in the room... There is uh, an agreement of secrecy of what James said in that 20 minutes. It was fantastic, but you don't know, man, if you weren't there. Let's get into it. (laughs) It is live. I'll just have to do a summary. (laughs) we, We actually think... We were just talking to Daniel over here. Who's, can we give Daniel a round of applause? He's travelled from Bendigo to be here today. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Has anybody come further than Bendigo? Uh, yeah, <laughs> Clifton Hill. Yeah. Uh, now, I was just talking to Daniel. Daniel said, don't make the mistake that previous guest of the show, Luke from L of Time, made, where he did not press record. I think I've just made that mistake. But... You should all be very, very pleased with yourselves <laughs> because you're the good guys who are here. You heard it. The genius. The best bit of the podcast. No, no, no. It's the best is yet to come. We are now recording. Welcome to the Chosen Brew Beer. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's exciting, isn't it? If, uh, if you're on a live event, I dealt with all of these technical issues. Brilliant. Didn't press a chord. You only do that once, James. Or twice or in twice, your case. Yeah, yeah, once on your way up. <laughs> uh, and now. Uh, so <laughs> so we're, we're here to talk through the six beers that changed everything, mm. James. First beer. Well, I must... How is it, uh, the first note... I put a few notes down so didn't forget anything. And the first note I made for this was, sorry, it's a terrible beer. But actually, it's all right. It's not... A, it's not as terrible. Now, um, now, now, with people not knowing what this beer is yet, uh, can we give a thumbs up or a rating? Do we think this is, yeah, liking it over here? Yeah. Down, we got a down from Luke. Yeah. Yeah, no, Luke's. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, the, the first beer and a number of the beers are, are going to be kind of like amalgam beers of a time. Um, this actual beer is McEwen's Export. Um, and I wanted the first beer to be a beer that would be an amalgam of all the real ales I drank growing up in the UK. We wanted it to be Timothy Taylor Landlord, um, but that's no longer exported to Australia anymore. Dan's used to be the biggest importer. Um, you got in touch with Timothy Taylor and they said, sorry, um, it's not here, which in, 
itself is an indictment. Well, it's a comment or a, highlights where the, craft, the beer world's got to in that that beer would have been coming over here for 10, 20, 30 years and is a fantastic beer, especially back in the UK. And there's no interest anymore in English beers, British beers, really. Um, although McEwen's Export still comes here. Um, and uh, <laughs> and the, whole, the idea was to try, I guess, sort of... Um, I grew up in the UK, as you can probably tell. And when I first started drinking, other than the odd like bottle of 2020 from the corner shop across the road from school or the four packs of Saracens when Audi first... I mean, you get a four pack of Saracen Lager, 2.9%, from Audi for 99 pence... And we and we used to stash uh, like cut off half two liter bottle and with a hose on the end and we'd like neck four of them after school on a Friday and go to anyway drink but, uh, drink responsibly. Everybody. But apart from that, I always I gravitated to drinking bitters and drinking relays straight away when I started drinking. I don't know why, but a lot of these beers actually is kind of with hindsight. It's like oh that makes sense. So. When we first started going to pubs um, or buying beer when I was probably you know, in my teenage years, most people would just have got sweet stuff or lager, but I'd always drank real ales. And so this is sort of, this was a beer I used to drink. Um, mainly, I, despite the accent, I have two Scottish parents, but I was born in England and they brought me up to be Scottish. So if I went to a party, I'd always take McEwan's export and go, <laughs> I'm fucking Scottish. Uh, and um, so there, there was that element to it, but um, yeah, I, I, this real ale is a thing that almost disappeared back in the sort of sixties and seventies, like with when lager was taking over the world. Um, and Camera, the campaign for real ale, did this amazing job of bringing it back. Um, and if you if you get if you go to a pub that knows what it's doing and looks after Cascale really well. It's amazing. Like it's like nothing else in the world. Once it's tapped, you've got like five days ish where it's at its best. Cause it's a living, breathing thing. On my recent trips to the UK, it's very hard to actually find good Cascale now. If I'm in a pub that isn't a really good pub, I'll never order it anymore because it's you get too much sour stuff, too much stuff that's been sat there too long. But if you get something that's kept really well with that low carbonation, I won't get into too much detail, but um, it's just, it's beautiful. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful drink, um, really well-maintained real ale. Uh, we had Pete Brown, the British beer writer over here recently, and we did an event with him at Fixation, and he reckons a good real ale is the most refreshing beer in the world, and I've been saying that for years as well. And you can't get over here, even the Tim Taylor, weren't the same because they're bottle conditioned and, and carbonated, but... Real ale treated well in a good pub, even if it's not got fancy new hops or whatever, is an amazing thing. It is, and uh, it's interesting that it's never there's been times where it seems like cask could become a thing in Australia, and it's just never you know it it seems too difficult, yeah. and also the it takes such a shift for Australian drinkers, you know, as a generalisation to come over to this weak, warm, pommy piss, I yeah. think. Uh, well, it's, it's such a specialist yeah. skill as well. Like, you have to have the right equipment. You have to have the right beer. You have to have the right... Like, the, the, they're struggling to find enough people who know how to treat it in the UK. Like, so how can we expect to have it over here? Um, so it's one of those few beer, you know, few beers that you probably have to travel somewhere to get properly. 
Um, and, you know, the, the, the one, if I could have had the one beer I would have wanted to showcase this period, there was a beer called um, Harvest Pale, um, made by Castle Rock in Nottingham. 3.8%, so be a mid-strength over here, but kind of pretty average for a bitter over there. And it was so pale. I remember having it the first time and just being blown away by how much flavor and aroma it had. And when I'd go and review gigs, I knew I could have two pints of that before the gig and still drive home and write the review and whatever. Um, it was only when I went back years later, having started the Crafty Pint and lined up a, bre a brewery tour, and I asked about that beer, and it turns out it was the first one they'd ever made with American hops. So all these little things, you sort of go, oh, well, that's why it stood out from the rest. Like, it was made with Cascade, Columbus, and Chinook, um, uh, which was really unusual for a beer at that time, and it won awards or whatever, you know. Um, so that would have been the, the beer I'd have loved to showcase as the classic real ale, but um, you got terrible McEwen's Expo instead. And, and uh, Scotland's kind of, uh, I know Shandy, when he was on the show, uh, Timothy Taylor was one of his beers, mm. Epiphany beers. And uh, he did tell a lovely story about uh, drinking it on the wall of a car park. He told us that a, earlier as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he was drinking Road and Brack Grand Crew when he was 15 years old. So kudos to him. Um, and actually, um, Matt Merrick, one of the listeners to the show who's here tonight, he actually sent me an email a while back of his kitchen bench with a, a beer engine hand pump. Uh, on and it, it, I felt a bit naughty when it dropped <laughs> in the inbox. It was like, do I hide this from the wife? Do I? You know, <laughs> this man who I don't know sending me beer porn. <laughs> so it's yeah. and it is a beautiful thing, Caspia. Yeah. Even the way it's presented. I mean, you know, we do a good job, kind of how the taps look in a venue like this, very sleek and modern and industrial. But going into an old English pub where it's got that beautiful. Fit, I don't want to get too into it. Uh, yeah. You know, need to calm myself down, but. It, it is a beautiful thing, and um, yeah, I, 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 a part of me hopes it doesn't doesn't ever come to Australia because I think it's it never will. It is uniquely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That revolution only goes so yeah, far. Yeah. Um, choice two, um, our oh, choice two. Okay, well, um, I guess so many things are these beers come with hindsight with where I've ended up. So this is um, Paulana's um, Hefeweizen. Um, the first job I had before becoming a journo, I worked for British Aerospace in the commercial department on Tornado fighter planes, despite having spent my entire uni time like dancing at forest parties and being nice. The they were the only people stupid enough to give me a job, basically, after uni. But the one good thing I got out of that was I, they'd been wanting to send someone to Germany on a placement for years and no one had taken them up. I'm like, why wouldn't you do that? So I ended up living in Munich for six months. And the very first night I was there in some apartment hotel, there was one other guy in the building who was been out there for a while working for the same company. And he took me down to this little, it was like a sort of hole in the wall bar in another hotel block. And I ordered this beer. And it came out in that, you know, this sort of the tall, um, you know, curvy wheat beer glass. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I remember having a sniff and going, smells of bananas. And he was like, what do you want about um, and turns out it does smell of bananas. And it's kind of a weird thing because when I came over here and started writing about beer or about pubs and breweries and stuff years later, I was like, I need to learn about beer. Because when I moved here, I actually had never been to a brewery. Or I might have been to one. I had no idea what the ingredients in beers were. In beer were. Um, so I, I did the BJCP what was it um, course out with some home brewers in Baronia. I remember the first 
two or three weeks I was there, we'd be sniffing and tasting beers and smelling, not sniffing, a bit like dogs with <laughs> each other's backsides. Um, we weren't doing that. And the people were going, oh, I, I can smell this and I can taste this. And I was like, I have no idea what they're talking about. I was like, I am rubbish. Like, I'm a fraud. I, you know, I'll have to stick to telling stories and I can't get more into the beer thing. Um, and about four or five weeks in, there was one time I was going, oh, I reckon there's a bit of chocolate in this. And someone said chocolate. And went, yeah, that's, yes. Um, and it was like this awakening for the palate, which, which made everything more interesting, you know. Um, I won't get into it too much because my wife's me stabbing herself in the eyes with a fork listening to this. Um, <clears throat> but thinking back to this, like this was su- must have been such a distinct characteristic that in 1998 or whenever it was, um, that sort of hit me as being this characteristic in a beer. Um, but I think, I guess most time in Germany would have been marked by playing Diddy Kong racing in a haze in my hotel room or going to techno clubs on the outskirts of the city. But there would have been enough time in bars and having these beers and going, these all taste really good. And the culture was very different as well, and that was kind of eye-opening. Um, people would get drunk and drink a lot of beer, but there was no trouble like you get in the UK. Like it's a very, the British and English drinking culture is very similar. People, when they're younger, especially like to get drunk and just. In Germany, there's beer available the whole time and it's good, and they get drunk, but there doesn't seem to be that side to it. Um, Why do you think that is? It's just, I don't know, it's just part of. It's so ingrained in the culture, especially in Bavaria. Like, the workplace I was at, they sold beer in the shop that you could go to to get magazines or biscuits or whatever, and you could buy it all day. When you went to the canteen at lunchtime, they had several taps of serve yourself beer and people having glasses of wine. And it was just such a sort of normalised thing that people didn't take the mickey with it. You know, I wouldn't have a drink at lunchtime because otherwise I'd be even more useless than I generally was anyway. <laughs> but there's like vending machines, you know, on the streets where you can buy cigarettes. There was, you know, there's, it's kind of everywhere. You sort of go out later at night. You might not go out till 10. You start in a, in a bar or a you know, brewery pub. You might go out to a nightclub. You might drink Heller's Lager till 6 a.m. and then get the first um, train back to the back home, and wake up at six or wake up six hours later and be fine. And then you go back to the UK, have four or five pints of some terrible beer, McEwen's export, <laughs> forget so, and then have a headache the next day. And it always it's like this, it was an understanding there was better beer or there was a higher quality beer. I guess you know would have been the thing that sort of sunk in. As much as anything there, and it's very localized, isn't it? In Germany, yeah. everything's very local, it's very cheap. Yeah. It used to be like going buy a crate of half liter bottles of amazing lager for like seven euros, which was about four pounds fifty at the time. And then you take it back, and they give you two euros fifty back for the bottles. It was like there's no point in drinking water. My, my friend who did a year of his degree in Frankfurt, he used to go and watch the uh, the soccer ball team Eintracht Frankfurt. And he said people used to walk into the ground with, a, with a 24 bottles and stand on the crate to watch, mm. to get a better view of the game and just be picking out bottles yeah. as the game goes on. And then by the time they couldn't stand on it anymore, it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Just yeah, I know. Like, they have um, yeah, amazing beer fest. But the most famous one in Munich is the Oktoberfest. I've never, never been to that. But there was one in it's every March called the Startbeer Fest. And it's born of the time when the monks would fast and they 
fasting meant only drinking beer, and they made this really strong beer full of extra you know, nutrients and spices. And to the Start Beer Fest, they only serve this really strong, I guess it's probably a Doppelbock, um, and in, you know, litre masses. And you go along to that, and we'd always go really late, like, you know, an hour or two before it closed, because we didn't trust ourselves being, you know, British. Um, and you walk in, and there'd be some people who'd been there since 10 o'clock in the morning, and they'd be sat there, like, gone, like, just staring as nothing, but they wouldn't be causing... And they'd be left there, it's like, it's fine. You know, if you... I reckon if you did that here, you'd be wrestled out, and it would cause trouble. But it was just interesting, you know, that... You know, the, the, they have this beer fest around strong beer, and there still wasn't trouble. Yes, people would be drunk and falling over, but it wasn't there wasn't there wasn't that aggressive, edgy kind of side to things. You know. On that note, mm. a back. Mm. Uh, for those who are listening who might not be across this, uh, essentially, craft beer has been in the firing line for. Um, the way they market the beers, they brand the beers, uh, that might be appealing to children. Uh, ABAC is a voluntary code uh, which helps keep that in line. Uh, craft beer hasn't done a, an amazing job of, uh, you know, poking the bear has <laughs> mm. been the case. Um, what's your take on, on that and, and maybe the future of ABAC and also how, how breweries can actually navigate that you know they want their brands to be really appealing and bright and and fun uh but they clearly yeah well i I think there's there's been within the branding side of things there's been either people going too far or i think there's been you know a case of breweries sometimes been lazy you know there's been there's been the ip thing as well you know just ripping off other um brands um and maybe looking for cheap noise I mean you have there's so much noise in the market now there's so much competition that a lot of people are shopping with their um, eyes and people who have moved away from mainstream beer but perhaps don't really know too much about craft beer like we were camping with someone at a music festival at the weekend um, and she we were sat there on the Friday afternoon early after and she was drinking a can of Hop Nation the chop like 7% IPA and I was like Wow, Robin. And she went, I, I bought this because I love the look of the can. I was like, you don't know it's 7%, so it's delicious. She was like, oh, I didn't realize. And she bought Fixation IPA and Chop IPA as her two beers because she liked the look of the, the cans. So, you know, so you've got that thing where a lot of people are going to go in and see so much, so much, you know, and unless you have someone you know in a bottle shop you can trust, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. So I understand people are trying to do something different. So there has been an element, I think, of some people going too far and trying to be too cute or trying to be too lazy or clever whatever it is so there needs to be a kind of a realignment there there does seem to have been like an acceleration on the other side of people making complaints to ABAC and they're always anonymous and they will always act on a single complaint it's not like you wait for a weight of noise about something they will always investigate to the same degree anything that gets complained about or gets sorry gets reported um and that seems to be accelerating as well. Um, I'd imagine we probably need a bit of less at either end. Like we don't want to, no one wants to stifle creativity, but you can be creative and clever without doing something that is immature or irresponsible and deliberately provocative, um, presumably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the sad thing is that there's some things that are, are fantastic that are probably getting sucked, uh, sucked up in it. Um, 
because I, don't, I guess it's, it's kind of an easy thing to get a bit of noise in the media about as well. Like craft beer is now something that people talk about and it never really was, but it's a cool topic to talk about. So any bit of controversy, people love controversy as well. So it's easy to sort of you know, fan the flames in the media if something happens. You know, something along these lines. So, you know, it, there's far more noise about it than there actually are cases, um, is one thing. But, you know, it's something where I think we'll find the, the rougher edges sort of smooth themselves out. So on that note, it, yeah, it does get talked about. There's been a few articles, one of them written by Froth magazine creator Emily Day, uh, where she sent, it was in The Age, it was about the ABAC issue. The, the, the headline was changed from craft beers to hipster mm. beers. Yeah. We still have an image problem, don't we, craft beer? Uh, the media has a problem, <laughs> really. Like, I used to write for The Age on beer years ago. Like, that's the first time I did was with Epicure. Um, and it was a real battle, and we managed, I managed to get a couple of like, cover stories, and I was with the then editor, um, who's now at Hardy Grant. Um, we were, I was getting close to trying to get a regular column and going, like, you know, just trying to work on going, you have to respect this, like, you know, this isn't a joke, it's not a gimmick, it's not a fad, like, you have to respect it, like, you respect wine, like, you respect everything else. And we're sort of getting there, like, you don't just get... There used to be like three or four stories that were the only stories ever written about craft beer. It's too expensive, the ingredients are stupid, and women actually drink beer. Like Those were the three stories that you ever got. And we're sort of getting beyond that now, and there is a bit more respect. But yeah, this whole hipster thing is def you know, the people are still trying to castigate it, but I think that's happening less and less in society, and it's, it's happening more in lazy media than it is actually in society. And hip hipsters are cool. Look around the room here. I mean, yeah. these are these people aren't hipsters. I mean, this is <laughs> these are, this is the rusted on craft beer audience. I mean, we're not cool, are we? Well, I was going to say I was gonna, <laughs> when we were talking about real ale earlier. If you want to see a real beer geek, go to a Camera Beer Festival in the UK. Like it's it's the ultimate. The, uh, the socks and sandals really does exist. The the T-shirt they bought at the 1978 British Beer Festival that's got their bacon breakfast that that morning adding like the 48th meal on top it's genuinely a thing it's i'm not gonna say it's beautiful but it, it exists yeah a, a music group from my hometown half man half biscuit oh, wrote yeah. a song called cameraman mm. and it <laughs> is very eloquent and succinct about who cameraman is so um independence does yes. it matter um it does to, to some people um to, to you james yeah well you know yeah, gen yeah, of course. Like, if, if I think about the way I would um, shop for anything in my life, I'll try and, you know, where possible, support, you know, small independent. Um, I was chatting to someone about this earlier. I think it was Will, actually, on the phone. And I think I'd even, even four or five years ago when I was last writing an intro for the last book I wrote, talking about what does craft beer mean, I said, you know, there's, even back then there was a move towards talking about independence. But... The further you dig into it, like, you know, independence in beer is defined by, if you're not owned by a, a multinational big company in size or whatever, but there are small breweries out there who will be 80% owned by private equity or, you know, so it's a very, and no one ever has to declare that, but you, but people know if you're owned by a big, big beer company. And yes, there are, there are differences. You know, if you're owned by a big beer company, they own a bunch of taps and so they can plug you into K-Box karaoke. 
you can now get not that I've not that I've been there. Someone told me you can get Pirate Life and Four Pines there apparently, but your best deal is still the two bottles of cheap champagne for a hundred bucks, um, apparently. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's an interesting one. Like it definitely it's a it's something that is very useful for Australian brewers to um, use as a rallying point. But I think if that's all you've got, then you're in trouble. Like the, the, the most important thing for an independent brewery is to know who you are, have good beers and have, you know, and have, but you know, know who you are, what you're about um, and where you're going and like, and stick to that. Like, you know, if you're just going to go, oh, we're independent, come and visit us and drink us, but you've got nothing else to offer, then just, you know, it's, it's vapid really. Um, so, I, you know, it, it is important. I still don't know if the message has been worked out as clearly as it should be um, but it's you know it's an extra tool people have against the bigger guys I suppose and the independent seal which you know has largely been celebrated by people like us you know who it's a it's a good s- signal when we're buying I was so close to doing a joke about an actual seal and I'm glad I didn't you know <laughs> thank god I didn't you just did uh, <laughs> so um, you know that that kind of matters to us. It's very useful to the consumer to have that seal. Uh, <laughs> cute joke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it helps keep balls in the air. <laughs> and, um, but it is problematic in the respect that it's, you have to pay to be a member of the independent to be able to put that seal on your label. Hmm. Is that problematic in itself? I mean, in, in other countries, they it's a completely kind of... I mean, I don't know who funds it, but it's a completely voluntary thing where they identify your brewery as independent and you're able to sign up without paying it's just, uh, it's for a, it. it. It does seem an odd approach that you have to pay to be part of a club to say you're independent. I'll be, you know, I, I think. And with the recent Indie Beer Day, which was great, you know, got a lot of people all talking about local sport and local beer. From what I understand, to be able to use the supporters become a supporter you only had to have one independent beer in your venue so you could have like 20 taps of lion and one tap of stone and wood and you're an independent beer supporter um these things will be discussed i'm sure <laughs> worked out i know you've got to be careful like if, if you have this message you don't want to dilute it like it has to be something that stays strong you know like we're the crafty pint we're not the indie pint we still have Pirate Life, Mountain Goat, uh, Four Pines, these people you know, listed on Crafty Pine. On their page, in brackets, it says who they're owned by. You know, with, uh, for me, I see that as an honest way of putting the reality out there. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's some things I reckon might need refining. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, um, we are going to have a break shortly, everybody. We've been talking for a long time. We've only recorded 12 minutes of it, but it's fine. Um, now, choice three, James. Uh, so here's another... Here's, this is another one where um, it's not, not the beer that it would have been, um, but it's a far better option than the uh, McEwen's export, hopefully. So the beer that I was intending to have uh, would have been Dogfish Head 90-Minute IPA. Um, has anyone had hands where you had Dogfish Head 90 minute IPA it's this real sort of um, iconic American IPA the 90 minutes refers to the continual continual hopping of the beer through the 90 minute boil from start to finish Um, and 
Um, I couldn't get that here. So I had discussions with a few people about what we could get. Um, and what we, ha what you have in your hand is um, Akasha from Sydney's Corbin D double IPA. Um, it's not as um, meaty, chewy, and sort of full on as Dogfish Head, but it's a bloody um, awesome local double IPA. Um, and Dave from Akasha, who uh, previously launched Riverside Brewing, is a lovely man who makes great IPAs. So I'm more than happy to have his Corbin D as part of the lineup. So before we talk about the Akasha, um, why Dogfish Head? Why was that beer an epiphany beer? Oh, well, it was. So when I was still working for the Evening Post in Nottingham, um, we're going to go, it's a little bit dark. Uh, a guy from Nottingham shot his wife and baby uh, in America. Um, and it was decided that I was the person who should go over there and try and do some digging around and do some reporting and investigating around what had happened. Uh, and so I was flown to the States again, like when I came to Australia thinking... There's going to be no good beer over there, which is because now, now I look back at 25 years ago when I was 18, I think we were over there with family. So my dad's family moved from Scotland to America. And so we went to join his family in South Carolina and for Christmas. And my one of my cousins came down. He was living in a teepee on the side of a mountain in Colorado, skiing naked and playing his guitar and whatever. And I remember he, on Christmas Day, he presented these two beers. And one of them was like a nut brown ale. And one was a red ale. And this would have been like the really early days of craft beer. But even though I'd had that when I was 18, you know, you have it and it skips your mind. But anyway, back on this trip, um, I was staying about an hour and a half outside of Boston. I think when I went, I you know, didn't have much time off. But I, I think one of the first second nights I went to the bar next door, which was attached to some, you know, just awful travel tavern type thing and they had some pretty interesting beers on tap but then the guy who was reporting on it for the local paper he was this massive massive man there's no denying it I'm not being rude here he was a very large guy and he brought up the subject of beer with me and he goes if you've got any time off I'd love to take you to this bar in Cambridge so on the Saturday afternoon I clocked off at sort of mid-afternoon and he drove me in this place, I think it's called the Ocean Grill, it's still around, and it had 124 taps of beer and mead and cider lining the whole way around the back of the bar. They did beer steamed burgers. Um, I remember it was like minus 25 degrees C because I went outside to phone home and tried to have a cigarette at the time because I was a dirty smoker back then. I wasn't Matilda, cut that bit out. Um, and my fingers were like almost fell off, you know, trying to, but. These, I had given these multiple menus of beers and they were so strong and it just looked so ridiculous. I was like, what is this thing? And one of them had this bag hanging under the tap and it was Dogfish Head 90 Minute and I guess clearly they felt there weren't enough hops in this beer. So they'd hung a bag of hops under the tap and they poured it through this, these final few cones of beer. So anyway, I had five or six different beers and I remember having, they were all amazing. And I was like, how can a beer that's 9% be so incredible like it was mind blown like it just did not make sense to me and then I was like well and this guy opposite me was going beer for beer with me I'm like I don't know how I'm getting back to the hotel like it was so far away from where I'm staying and he went alright we'll head back and I remember, so we got, got back in his car he was driving happily you know he had a bit more ballast to balance the beers with 
But I asked him, and he goes, oh, what are, if I'm really bad? Because I've, I've taken it, if I'm really bad, I put my thumbs on the steering wheel like this, because it's all like five-lane highway, and I just keep the white lines between my thumbs, and I know I'm okay. And so... So he basically invented the lane assist, which is now on every <laughs> modern car. That, that is amazing. <laughs> and yeah, so it was like he then dropped me in my hotel. I said, "Where?" He goes, "Oh, I have another forty-five minutes to go," but he was still in the office the next day. Um, so that was my moment. But then I realised later down the line, this guy was the beer nut, which who so he was a news reporter for this regional paper, the Metro something West or whatever. And I don't know if he'd launched the beer nut column then or whether it was happening soon afterwards. But he went on to become syndicated in like 1,200 newspapers and magazines across America, all about beer. Up until, I think he still has gone, but up about a year or two ago, he, it was a big story, story in the beer world, because he was so big and so unhealthy, he goes, I've got to look after myself and I'm quitting drinking. So this guy that was reporting on this double murder with me, like I, I got to go, <laughs> got walked through the prison, you know, so you would have one day walking around a <laughs> graves, graveyard, looking at these and then the next day going and then hanging out with the beer and drink eating beer smoked burgers and drinking dogfish head um but it would have been one of those things that would have like all these things that just sort of sink in without you realizing until the moment comes um and then I've, we've sort of stayed in touch every now and then like he's written books i've written books and we've conversed is he still driving I assume probably better than he ever has done <laughs> a, bit, a big thumbs up to him yeah, still yeah, driving two, two thumbs up <laughs> Well, it is it, IPA. You know, it is responsible. I think for about sixty-five percent of all beer sales in, in craft IPA, like or pale ale. Oh, yeah, in, it is in the kind States, of in, yeah. in, uh, you know, and you can kind of tell why when you as soon as you lift it up compared with the other two beers, it's just like <laughs> it's just yeah. an assault on the senses. Yeah, and uh, and truly is delicious. Yeah, oh, you know, and, and Akasha makes a whole bunch of great IPAs. They, they, they've done six tuple IPAs or whatever. But this, I think, is probably the one where they absolutely nailed the brief, so to speak, well, as well as they could. You, you did a very good job to choose, what is it, a 9% beer just before the break, yeah. just so that you can maybe uh, go outside and put your thumbs up and see <laughs> if you're, you're all okay. Um, yeah. So, And the good thing is I've been feeling ill all week, but halfway through this... Perfect. <laughs> that is better than uh, Codril, that's yeah. for sure. Um, I've, got, I've been given codeine. Oh, hello. Yeah, I've, I've, been you, sleeping, I've been sleeping a lot. You've got to give your driving <laughs> license and stuff for codeine, haven't you? No, no, I was asking about lozenges, and the chemist like, spent 30 seconds. He went, come over here and have this stuff from behind the counter, but don't give it to your kids. That's a drug dealer, James. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was the chemist's warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> on that bombshell uh, we will pause if you uh, you can switch your headphones off or you can put them on to track one and listen to some music but give your ears a break and when James and I come sit back down you'll know that we're going to start and <laughs> I will press record <laughs> we'll just have a little break in the middle of this episode as you can tell it, it was so much fun to record with James and it was for the third birthday of the podcast as well. So thanks, everybody, for your support. If you'd like to give me a little birthday present, give the podcast a birthday present. Leave a review. Spend a little bit of time now. Just go wherever you get your podcasts. That would be fantastic because it helps more people find a podcast and hopefully ends up in all of us drinking better beer. 
let's join the episode again where I do this time remember to press record. <laughs> has anyone got a spare SD card? Because this has got about two minutes left. <laughs> Such a professional. Um, let's start broad, James. Alcohol. Yes. Its negative impact upon the Australian economy is about $36 billion a year. Uh, it's responsible directly for about 4,000 lives uh, a year. Is disruptive to communities, relationships, etc., etc. You run a, a website which promotes alcohol and its consumption. How how do you sleep at night? <laughs> In an alcohol-induced haze. <laughs> how else does anyone sleep? Uh, interesting question. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess it's. I guess alcohol and alcoholic beverages and its role in society is something that's been around for um, millennia. Um, and it's like everything in life. Like, if you treat anything the right way, it's not going to be a problem. Um, alcohol um, brings people together, or it can do. It can bring enjoyment, loosening of, you know... Um, Strict, you know, loose, loosening of uh, straight jackets, that kind of thing, with people. Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess it's, it's interesting because it, if you think about, say, beer festivals per se, um, Gabs, which sold last week, like when I was up in Gabs, Sydney, they say that with Gabs, Sydney, it's a completely different vibe because as soon as it opens, a, whole, a bunch of people run to the festival bars and go, what's your strongest beer? Give us a glass of that. You know, and it just shows us different approaches to different things in different places. What are you, um, what are you suggesting about people from Sydney? Well, no, this is, this is I'm just I'm just objectively reporting. Um, you know, so there are, you know, it's, I guess it's talking about the you know the UK and Australian drinking culture as opposed to what I experienced in Germany. You know, like the, it's it's how you use anything. You know, and if we wanted to really go broad, you either make everything that gives anyone any sort of enjoyment. Or any, any, anything changes people's sort of you know um, mental space uh, illegal, or you make everything legal, which is the way we should go, people, um, and just educate everyone on the good and the bad and what everything does. Um, but we're never going to get that there in my lifetime, um, so we'll focus on the legal ones. Um, but um, yeah, I think you know it's, it, within the craft beer world, you know. Alcohol is involved, and like you know, the previous beer we had is a pretty strong beer. But you're not drinking it because it's a nine percent beer, unless you're in the first session of Gabs in Sydney. You're drinking it because this, the fact that beer is nine percent is only one part of its creation. Like if it wasn't nine percent, it couldn't be what it is. And it was delicious because it's balance balancing the booze, the malt, the hops, the bitterness in this perfect. Creation, name-checking Luke Besson's best movie as well, um, and uh, you know, so it kind of works. But you have to have the education side of it, I guess, as well. Um, I think craft beer is the wrong place to be sort of targeting the alcohol hammer at. Yeah, and I think the, one of the reasons I asked that um, deliberately provocative question was uh, at the Crafty Pint. 
there's an old journalistic saying, which is, you know, you have a responsibility to report on the orchard, not just the exotic fruit. Mm. And it is an industry where people are drawn to the exotic fruit, and that's what gets the traction. But at Crafty Pint, there is a, an approach there which, you know, um, reports on the, the uglier sides of mm. the industry, some, some things that the undertones that are happening exploitation of workers, mm. experience of women within the industry, um, you know, to name two. Uh, you know, how, how do you make that compromise and balance in terms of actually reporting on what's actually happening, happening out there? But also, they're your customers, aren't they? Like, the industry is, helps the Crafty Pint exist. There's no compromise or balance. Like, as I said before, like, we're trying to tell the whole story of what's going on, and that's part of what it is. Um, I wish we had more time to do stuff like that, and maybe we should make more time. It's, you know, it, like I say, the challenge is trying to do everything you want to do and find time to do everything. I'm lucky that I have, I've got a very good team, but there's, there's also free, freelancers out there who write for me who are phenomenally talented. So, like, so MC, or if her mother's listening, Marie Claire Jarrett. Um, up in Sydney, who's moving to Melbourne in February. God damn it, because I like to have her in Sydney. Um, she put forward in the piece on sexism and she ended up winning a beer media award at ARBAs this year because um, it was something that she wanted to write about. And she, you know, it wasn't like the grandstanding, obvious stuff. It was like about the insidious stuff in the industry, you know, and we worked together on it and to, to get it, you know, to a position where. Uh, it had to be, you know. I, I think I'm <laughs> I don't. I don't want to talk about that story in my life. It's it gone too long. <laughs> pretty fantastic. Well, one thing I learned pretty early on is it's very important to take emotion out of a topic to have maximum impact. So that's one thing. But with that, you know, you have that topic, and I was, we worked with her to take some of the emotion out of it to present it as it was, because then you actually get more emotional impact. So I'm very lucky to have people like that. You know, I wish we could do more stuff like that. And it's not a case of compromising or finding a balance it's like they're just they're all things that should be told and I, I often look upon the day-to-day -day, oh here's a new brewery starting that's kind of your bread and butter and you need you know you listen because it's important to tell the story to you know try and have written about or talked about everybody that's out there as best as we can but the important stuff is actually that stuff that stuff where you ask questions where you try and go deeper where you actually address something that needs to be talked about so like, we, we haven't done many a back stories because you're kind of rehashing the same stuff time and again but what we did do is we'll spend you know a fair bit of time creating an article that was here is who a back is here's why they exist here's what they do here's how you can work you know it's, it's kind of you know you're trying to pull it together and go here's here's the thing you know what happens when you meet a brewery? You might go up there. They, I was going to say wine and dine you. They might just beer, give you beer <laughs> and dine you. Uh, or not. Or you make friends with them. You know them on a personal level. And then you check social media and they've released a homophobic meme or something about, you know, on, along those lines. They've, they've uh, had a massive clang clangor, which may be... Uh, also might be a signal to something deeper within that um, brewery. How do you deal with with reporting on that and that on a personal level as well? Well, it, 
it doesn't happen too often, which is great. I guess probably the biggest example um, would be Black Hops with the, um, the Pussy Juice beer and the stuff that went, the promotion that went around it. Um, for anybody hearing that for the first time <laughs> here, that, it is just it's shocking. <laughs> it's just the name of the beer alone. Pussy Juice uh, beer. Look, I, I can put a link oh, yeah. to both. Um, no, and the thing is, there was, a, there was, in their heads, there was a reason behind it. And it came from one of the female staff who this year won, you know, best uh, beer tender or whatever in, in Queensland at their beeries. Um, it was, a, I don't know, I'm still not 100% convinced there wasn't some element of, oh, if it kicks off, it, whatever, you know. But it was, in their minds, there was something that was genuinely okay to do this. But in that, in that case... I remember when it came, I got a text from Ryan at Little Bang Brewing in SA and I was just packing up to go and meet my graphic designer and he just sent me a screen grab and goes, I hope you didn't have anything to do today. And I was like, oh. all right, well, I've got to go. I jumped in the car and by the time I got to meet Jessie, who was part of the Pink Boot Society, she was on there sort of <laughs> talking going, I was like, we can't have this meeting. And so... Anyway, I guess what we did with that was spoke to them directly straight away. And I spoke to Dan from Black Hops on and off for the next two or three days. And it, with those things, I guess I always try and work out, okay, we need to do something on this. But in, in case, like that, I guess we try and go, you, you want to sort of talk about what's happened, but work out what needs to come from it, you know? Um, and so we, we did something on it pretty quickly. And there was two things going. There was like what we were reporting, I guess, on the website about. And then the intro, intro to my newsletter the following day, didn't it mentioned the, the incident, but it talked about why it mattered and the wider thing. So that's what we always try and do, is try and put it in context. But like those three days after that beer came out, I didn't realize until the Monday, I was shattered. Because it, I wasn't just trying to work out what the right approach was to take for Crafty Pint and what the right thing was that had to happen to try and offer some leadership to the industry, whilst also dealing with the guys at Black Hop. So at one stage, we were, we were amongst the team, we were like, do we take them off the website, put them to one side, you know, and emails going back and forth with them and conversations that were being misunderstood and yada, yada, and long conversations with other people in the beer industry going, you know, what's the feel? It was, you know... Um, we take it seriously, I guess, is, is the short answer. But always try and put it into a wider context. Like there was the thing earlier this year with the homophobic poster from um, Southern Bay. Southern Bay. And I didn't want to just put the story out there, which is what was happening. And the longer it went on, it's like, well, there's no point in doing that story because that's been told. It was like, what is the story? And the story is there's something wider than this. It's, you know, this is what they did was one mere example of something wider and the impact is the impact it has on people like my sales guy Scotty who's a gay man in the beer industry um, and a bloody legend and he was one of the first to fight back against them on social media and he got he was broke he got you know he came over to work with me the next day I was like Scott if you don't, if you don't only work just come and be with people who love you you know and just feel okay um, and we tried to work out, you know, what, and, th and that was that was for me what the story was. It's like it's not that these guys have done a stupid post and that their social media is shit. 
you know, and they haven't thought it through. The story is that this is the impact you can have. And this is why you shouldn't do it, you know. So it's a very dangerous place, isn't it? The below the line on Facebook. Uh, as soon as you start scrolling, anyone who has a car in their profile picture, they're dead to me. So um, <laughs> now, um, choice four. Oh yeah, we're here to talk about beers. Sorry. <laughs> um, all right. So we're actually, you know, genuinely moving onto Australian territory now. So this is Mountain Goat uh, Hightail. Um, so. My wife and I moved here in early 2008. Uh, I'd love to say this was the first beer I had back in Australia. Sadly, I reckon whilst we were walking up and down Chapel Street, because we'd booked eight nights in a service apartment, some don't remember the bottom end of Windsor or Pratt, um, we stopped into the Union, I think, and we had like a pot and steak special. Um, but the second beer I had in Australia, having moved back here, was at the Stoke House before it burnt down in St Kilda and looked at the menu and did what I always do. What's the local beer and what's the beer I've never heard of? And there was a beer on there called Mountain Goat Hightail. So I ordered that and this dark beer came out. I was like, this can't be right. Like, there can't be an Australian beer that's dark. Um, and, it, and it was, and it was, you know, it was tasty and lovely. And I was like, oh, you know, that's interesting. Um, and then fast forwarding from there, Mountain Goat just became this, they, they have an amazing, we have an amazing intertwined relationship over the ensuing years. So about two or three weeks after we got here, my wife landed at three week placement at primary school. And there was a woman who was um, the one-on-one -on -one sort of assistant with a kid with autism. And it turns out, and they, they got on really well, and it turns out that Kate uh, was the girlfriend of Tom Delmont, who's now Mr. Fixation, but back then was Mountain Goat's first ever beer rep, and they got talking about beer. I oh. thought you were going to say Tom Delmont was the <laughs> autistic kid. <laughs> we will just let that one slide. Um, and... She mentioned that she had a boyfriend who worked for a, uh, for a brewery and a few weeks later Tara and I went and stood outside the Grey, Greyhound in St Kilda on a dark rainy uh, night and this old, old Merc pulled up, Kate driving, Tommy in the passenger seat we never met, some weird guy in the back seat who turns out was Tom's brother and we were driven across town and went into this warehouse in Richmond where there was this brewery and these really cool beers and it was like oh my god I can't believe this exists and became really good mates with them ended up playing for the Mountain Goat indoor cricket team the first time I ever explained to people what my vision for Crafty Pint I don't think it was called Crafty Pint at the time but it did end up with a line paraphrasing Martin Luther King so I have a dream and the dream is that there will be craft beer at the MCG I didn't imagine it would be through CUB buying Pirate Life but um, we'll get there but um yeah, that, this, so this was like, Mountain Goat was the real stepping stone for me to realise there was good beer out there. And through the indoor cricket team, met someone who worked for Hargraves Hill or Prickly Moses. And yeah, it all, everything, everything opened up. And I was lucky enough to be taken on their 15th birthday trip to the Northern Territory where they booked accommodation on Goat Island, which is this tiny little thing in the middle of the, this river about an hour's boat ride south of Darwin run by an insane Scandinavian dude um, where we we held a well they 
with me <laughs> filming held a beer dinner for whichever guys who lived around the river in that part of Northern Territory would come in and have a beer dinner. And so they served like some steam ale, hightail, some triple, the triple hightail they had out at the time for the anniversary, some black IPA. And these guys all got rooted. Um, and later on that night, we all went... When you say they all got rooted, that in Australia, that's... Drunk. Okay. okay. Drunk, sorry. <laughs> um, and, it, and, and, the, and the island had its own sort of almost pet crocodile that would come on shore every now and then. And she came on shore. Uh, she's been in the paper recently because she actually ate the owner's dog and it made the NT news. But she came on shore and we'd had so much beer, we were like, let's follow her around. So there was like... <laughs> Dave Benighton, the founder of Mountain Goat, me, uh, some guy who used to work on the bottling line there who wrote the, the hungry, uh, the bear, oh, what's, the, what's the kid's story? Hungry bear? The cranky bear, who wrote the cranky bear and now lives in, on a beach outside Darwin, him and his missus, and we were, and, and also the guys that used to run the GB when it was good in Richmond, we were following this crocodile around going oh this is pretty fun um, and we could have been killed anyway um, so I got to have all these amazing adventures with the mountain goat crew and then Shana who's over there with my wife kind of going it's not that bad honey he could have been a far worse human um, he's, he's the uh, godfather to one of, oh, not godfather my wife believes in that stuff uh, Aussie, Aussie guardian, guardian yeah. of, of my first child and Tommy, of my second, or vice versa, interchangeable. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so Mountain Goat has just been this amazing part of my life. And to be honest, we talked earlier on when you weren't recording about time and place. I, I wasn't recording for quite a while. This could be anything. <laughs> but just being, getting involved at that time and going out and doing what we did, like traveling the country to meet people... I got to meet like Brendan from Feral very early on, and you know, it's another whole story <laughs> to go into. And the guys from like Stone and Wood when they were less than a year on, we've got a photo of our first daughter propped up on cartons of Pacific Ale in their cool room in the early days, looking going, ten weeks old, going, "The fuck are you doing? <laughs> Propping me up in a cool room on cartons? It'd be really cool one day. Your dad will talk about it on a podcast." Um, <laughs> And was just like lucky enough to be in early enough where you met all these people who were already legends, but their legends were still kind of growing. And just to, yeah, be part of the ride with them and be welcomed along on the ride has been awesome. And we're in the shadow of the brewery just over, yeah, over yeah. the way here as we record in Burnley. Uh, it's become a real... Uh, I remember going to Mountain Goat fairly early on uh, when I arrived in Australia and it... I, I think probably the thing that defined it for me and probably the craft beer scene generally was that there was no dickheads. Mm. Everyone like held the door open for you and like yeah, it's chatted to you. And so many dickheads these days, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there was also, there was, you know, back in the 90s, there was the Melbourne Shuffle um, dance, you know, dance thing with the hard beat, you know. Um, but the genuine Melbourne Shuffle was when Mountain Goat closed and you had to go to the Royston. No? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, but no, so uh, this, this, this beer, it's still clinging on. There's been talk about it being discontinued. 
uh, Fancy Pants kind of became the sort of the new Hightail. Um, and the first batch of Fancy Pants, whether we just imagined it or whether it was true, God, that was, that was another mind blower. But um, Hightail is still clinging on and hopefully it still will, you know. And the Great Britain Hotel, the first uh, pub in Australia to sell um, Mountain Goat Hightail on yes. tap. To, to, to its owners and their friends only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Josh Hodges uh, from Mr. West, previous uh, guest on the show, uh, listen to that episode if you haven't already because he tells a great story about how his dad, uh, they used to instruct the um, bar staff to wear dresses to put people off. Because <laughs> it's like if people could get over the fact that the men were in dresses, that they could probably get over the fact that they were being served a dark beer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't fully understand the correlation but it worked no Chris is one of the legends of one of the lesser known unsung heroes of the Melbourne scene yeah he, he was he was the first guy to pour Hightail and the first guy to pour Little Creatures Pale on the east coast as well well wow. he's now got EDs in Brunswick um, Cherry Tree yeah. continues the vibe that way anyway choice five Ooh. I have to point out n- none of these beers until we get to the last one come from a time when I knew anything about beer at all so forgive me hang on so the beer in your hand is Foghorn out of Newcastle it's their Young Americans IPA Um, the reason this is here is because it's brewed by a man called Sean Sherlock who is one of the most wonderful people you can meet in the uh, beer world in Australia Um, he was a Australian history professor at Newcastle University before beer claimed him Uh, the beer I was thinking of was Murray's Icon 2 IPA which is one of the first double IPAs in Australia Um, and it would have been in my early days in Melbourne again and it was with Tommy and we were in Beer Deluxe late one evening it was when this uh, guy called Mick House who some of you might know he he was running Beer Deluxe he's now the main hawkers rep and uh, Tom looks through the beer menu and he goes, you've got to have this. You've got to have this beer. You know, Tom, you've got to have this beer. Um, and it was like $10 for a stubby. And I was like, we just moved here. I had no money. I can't spend $10 on a stubby of beer. That's insane. You've got to get it. And I was like, all right, okay. And so I got this bottle of Murray's Icon 2 IPA. And I put it to my nose and I was just blown away. I, was like, I can't believe a beer made in Australia smells that amazing and you know I'd have been going to go to a few but this this was just something other something incredible probably like having the dogfish head or whatever and um, we then chased that beer every time it came out they, they did it in 640ml red bottles with a some lewd kangaroo thing going on on the label and we'd, we'd hunt it down every time we could get it um, and that I guess that the reason I put it in here was for that moment but also it was that sort of realisation that something bigger and exciting was happening in Australia. And so I don't know if Murray's make it anymore, but Sean now has Foghorn Brewing, Brewery in um, Newcastle, a brew pub mainly. They started putting beer into cans about two months ago, which was good timing for us. Um, he has 18 taps and a hand pump at his Newcastle brewery. Always some IPAs, always some Saisons, always Sligo Stout, which is the best stout you'll taste in Australia by a mile. Um, apart from Burnley's Dry Stout. Yeah, apart from Burnley's Dry Stout. <laughs> um, 
And um, he's just a lovely guy who's into good music and history and just being a good human. Um, but yeah, that, that, that icon too was a real, this is happening in Australia kind of moment. It's kind of strange. I, I was talking to uh, someone of a of a big brewery in Melbourne, and they were saying that um, we won't make a double IPA because it won't sell. Mm. Our marketing people can't market it. But if you go back about six or seven years, there's stuff, interviews online, from senior people at CUB. I think Chuck Khan may have said, sorry, Chuck Khan, may have said similar things, saying like IPAs will never take off, like this high alcohol, high IBU thing, it will never work in Australia, you know? And it has. And it's, it's, still, it's still small. Like, you know, I was chatting to Jamie Cook from Stone and Wood recently. If you just take independent craft beer, pale ale is still king. And then after that is like summer ale, which is effectively pale ale, really. And then, comes the third, it's like, it was like lager fourth. So like IPA isn't even in the top four of craft beer sales it's still tiny over here but it's significant like you know you, people have them so it's kind of a I think one thing that's come come out of the guests on the on the podcast is that once people jump on that train they <laughs> they really jump on it they yeah. they're away in the and yeah. hop hunting and and seeking yeah. that and then they come back to lager oh yeah <laughs> for end. sure you know you know it's, it's, it's hard to drink IPA all the time you know breakfast lunch and dinner you're gonna struggle to get any constructive done oh, but, but there is something beautiful about a well-made that, I- that's not normal by the <laughs> way uh. but, I, but there's something beautiful about a well-made IPA I remember the first time I tried eight wides tall poppy uh, years ago and, I, and that's a beer with a huge hop character a huge malt character good bitterness thinking this is the beer that every other beer wishes it could grow up to be and kind of that's how a well-made IPA is. It's like if you're a, a sort of hops, malt, water, yeast, beer and you want to grow up and be just that bit bigger, you become an IPA. You know? That's a nice description. I've never heard it <laughs> described like that. That's, uh, I'm impressed. <laughs> and, you know, and then Nipah would be the IPA in the dress with Chris Hodges behind the bar, you know? So... <laughs> Carry on. I, I want you to go through every beer <laughs> style now. But yeah, so it's, I don't know it, it was. Yeah, it was th- that was a real eye-opening moment, and then there's been loads of you know. Uh, in, in recent years, there've been a lot more IPAs and double IPAs, but back in back in those days, like Feral, Murray's, Jamison had the Beast. Like there was no one was really doing these sort of beers. And they were doing it really, really bloody well. So uh, Australia, where where are we up to? I think, you know, there's people who think Australia are kind of in difficult teenage years. Other people think they're a toddler, not yet walking in terms of craft beer. Mm. Uh, I interviewed Colby Chandler from Ballast Point um, a couple of years ago on the podcast. Uh, he said, one thing he said to me off mic, which I'm sure he won't mind me sharing, uh, <laughs> he doesn't listen. Uh, <laughs> He, uh, he said one thing that stands out in Australia is that everyone's still friends. All the brewers are still friends. And I thought that was really depressing <laughs> because it means that when you, get, you grow and you become American, um, <laughs> that's the wrong way to phrase it, but when you become successful, that, that's when you start falling out and it becomes more difficult um, you know, to maintain the collaboration that is so notable and 
in in this industry right now. Where where are we up? Where do you think we're up to? And where do you think the next step for Australian beer is? I think on the friendship level, I think there's tensions, you know. But people still, we, we can name names. But, but still, <laughs> people still want to be friends more than they don't want to be friends, and they'll still be friends even if they're trying to shaft that friend when they're not looking. Um, but uh, I don't know. Back in the early, people would always say, oh, "You know, Australia's 10, 20 years behind the US." I've not been to the US in years, and I can't until Trump's gone. Um, so I, I can't, you know, uh, make a first-hand. Uh, assessment but last time I was there five years ago there were some great beers that were you know ahead of where we are now but there was average and pretty ordinary beers as well like you know I think we were seeing we we always see the best of the best of international beer down under you know so it's hard to make a fair judgment there going back to the UK recently admittedly I wasn't necessarily in hardcore craft beer places I reckon we have a better craft beer scene in terms of quality here than there is in the UK I think it's more scattergun and even some of the unicorns over there I reckon it's fucking hype more than actual quality um, without naming names um, I think you know New Zealand always for me had this phenomenal high quality strength in depth brewing and it still does but I reckon Australia can sort of hold its own there so I, I think it's come a long way I think there's been enough good people doing really good stuff and there must be something about the Australian mentality I don't know what it is that I really think it's sort of improved really quickly really well um, and I think the Australian beer culture is actually in a really good place compared to having not really been anywhere else <laughs> I can't compare it to anything you know personally I do think it's pretty damn good you know, and it's getting rarer and rarer for me to go on my travels and find something that's not at least decent. You know, if you have something that's really not good, it really stands out. You know, because it happens so rarely these days. It's it's become one of the benchmarks for me is that if I have a bad beer now, I'm over the moon because it makes me realise how good the beer yeah, I've yeah, been drinking yeah. a, as normal, where yeah. it was the opposite. Yeah. I, think, you know, I, I think the issues here aren't necessarily so much about beer quality. It's more about where we're going and the, you know, the, the noise and the madness and the craziness and you know, people maybe losing focus on what their focus needs to be, um, which are lesser issues as a consumer than shitty beer. Do you think, you know, it is, as you say, it might be that Australian kind of, you know, hard work ethic, you know, wanting to put the head down and, and make something and the kind of native pride and things. But I don't know it's hard work. I reckon Aussies just have this confidence where they just want to be good and the best at shit. You know, and the, but then when they are, they get undercut. It's like, you know, you know I grew up in the UK um, and used to look at the Australian cricket team. It was the, the one thing I supported England at was cricket because there was no decent Scottish cricket team. Every other sport I hated England and supported Scotland. But you'd look at the Australian cricket team and go, they're full of these arrogant fucking wankers. Sorry, Matilda, <laughs> it's late. Um, <laughs> and then I came over here and you'd realise that, with some exceptions, these people weren't arrogant. They were just confident 
believers who would maybe say stuff to because it worked and the, the Aussies would look at people like Flintoff or whatever and go oh, they're arrogant wankers and it was like oh it's just oh, we, we just don't see things from the other side um, so I think you know there is this Australian confidence and belief in being the best or wanting to be the best and I reckon you know that maybe that's helped drive you know look what happened in wine 20-30 years ago came from being this goonbag sort of awful wine place to becoming something that redefined or helped change the direction of wine globally and you know the beer world's come on in leaps and bounds do you think the australian beer scene can change the world i don't think it needs to because it's all it's changing everywhere anyway like australia doesn't need to try and make a statement on the global uh, on the global beer scene at all it just needs to be awesome at what it does locally like you know, if you want to export and sell beer overseas, fine. Um, but I don't think there's any need to have people overseas going, oh, Australian beer is fantastic. All we want is that when you go out in Australia, beer is fantastic. Sounds good to me. <laughs> um, now, we what a beer journey so far. And we are up to your sixth beer, James. Oh, your here? final beer. Oh, you've got a big one. Yeah, they, they've been getting miraculously bigger Um as, as we've gone on and um, I will also ask you for your snack to accompany the, the six beers and the receptacle to drink them out of as well in a moment and also I'll invite uh, some people if you do have a question uh, get ready to come up to the front as well um, James choice six so choice six um, another sort of amalgam beer um, the beer itself is Molly Rose uh, Matilda, um, not just because I need to make up to my daughter for swearing on the podcast. It's, uh, it's a beautiful beer. Um, over, for a long time, I always felt that Saison was my favorite beer style, and then I discovered delicate Brett Saisons, and that for me is, if I was to choose one beer style I had to drink for the rest of my life, it would be this, that, that style. Um, Nick from Molly Rose, makes a beautiful one um, in the shape of Matilda. Um, so I guess there's that personal thing, this is a beer style I love, and it's apart from the E instead of an A, it's the name of my daughter. Um, but it's kind of the amalgam of what I think is the end game of beer once you get really get into beer. If you get serious about it and you fall in love with it, and you, there's, there's no way you can go beyond Belgium. Like, Yes, you can come back out of Belgium and really enjoy a Corbin D or just a beautiful lager or whatever, but the Belgians, they got all the best tricks, you know? Like, they just make phenomenal... They, they've been breaking rules forever. Like, they've been throwing shit into beers forever. They've been making high ABV beers. They've been putting spices. They've been doing whatever they, they can. But, you know, they've been making sour beers, funky beers, whatever. And... Um, I could have put Rodenbach Caractere Rouge in here, but you'd have had to pay ten dollars extra for your tickets. Whether it's Cheapskates. <laughs> whether it's you know whether it's Flanders Red Style beers, whether it's this, whether it's just a nice Belgian Golden like there, whether it's a Gerza, whether it's a Lambic like there's there's something almost undefinable about what some of these beers can give you. You can have them the first time and go, that smells hideous. Why would anyone want to drink this? And then you have it and go, that, that tastes hideous. Why would I want to drink that? And then you go back and go, oh, hang on. There's something amazing here, you know? And I think that's kind of, for me, the end goal of the neck plus ultra of, of beer. If there's something beyond that, 
I'd love to hear, but you know. It's really interesting because as soon as you say Belgian beer, you, your mind goes to tradition. And tradition is normally stable and reassuring. And as you described there, it's quite a misconception because the Belgian beer is very dynamic. It's very traditional in certain respects, but very dynamic in terms of what they've done with beer, uh, what they're doing with beer. And probably the thing for me is how brilliant, it, as you said, the state of the Australian beer scene, but how brilliant it is to get a beer of that quality from down the street. Well, like, I and the same with uh, Burnley's Hellas as well. Mm. When I opened that, I drank it. It's like it's not normally a beer style I would enjoy uh, or, or buy, and I was just like, that is am- it's amazing to get like a German beer in in Melbourne, <laughs> like really well made, it's that good, yeah. really clean, and does exactly what it should. Yeah, that's the exciting part for me. I was lucky enough to spend three. It was pretty much three days and two hours in Belgium, maybe three three and a half years ago, maybe four years ago, and able to line up a couple of visits in advance. And my dad came along with me, who had never had a sour beer in his life. And that made it a bit different than going with your mates or whatever. But in those three days, admittedly we went to some pretty cool places and we were got to speak to the brewers and the owners or whatever. But I reckon you could spend three months traveling around America and never have as much glory <laughs> as, you know, was, was sort of, you know, bathed upon us on that trip in Belgium. Just Everything just seeps from the walls, you know, and... It's just, yeah, there's just something very special. And so, the, you know, and, and in terms of the Australian brewers making these sort of beers, they get more column inches per litre brewed by a mile. And, you know, you look at Wildflower, Molly Rose, Future Mountain, what Van Diemen's doing now. It is something that is more fascinating and people want to write and talk about more, you know, and it takes time and it's so dependent on patience or nature or you know it's it's just a wonderful thing you know and with a beer like this um there's so, there's a lot going on but it's also kind of subtle and simple and and nick if you've been if you're not into molly rose brewing yet you should go and check it out makes amusing makes amazing beers and nick is actually captain australia he's the hero we deserve so um he's worthy of your patronage are we giving this beer a thumbs up by the way it's pretty delicious, isn't it? Um, James, thanks so much for taking us through your beer journey. Uh, have you got an ultimate snack that you would ha- consume with these beers? Oh, my wife would say pork scratchings because uh, I, I went vegetarian a few years ago and then I went back to the UK, went on a pub crawl around uh, my mum and dad and my sister's hometown village. Came back home and I was like, oh yeah, we, we did all the classic pub things. We went in this place and we watched the footy. We were in this place, we played pool. We were in this place, we did this. And this place, we had pork scratchings. And my wife and my sister just went, pork scratchings, James? I was like, yes. They went, yeah, I said, we had three bags. They went, you're vegetarian. It's <laughs> like, oh, so I am. I need to get a bit better on that. Essentially, if you just want to have a drink, just something salty and... You know, simple, really. So pork scratching, a vegetarian choosing pork scratching. Well, no, ultimately, for me now, it has to be a vegetarian version <laughs> that would deliver such such a such an experience. And a receptacle to drink Zaltov. Drink the beers. Oh, you can't go wrong. Like these are these are beautiful. I love the the Belgian style goblet. Um, there's two I'd use most at home, which would be the Spiegelau Stem Pilsner 
or the Rastal Teku. It's, it's the same idea, just something that shaped that goes out of the lip that allows you to, well, you know, you can enjoy pretty much any beer from any of those, whatever they are. Well, James, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know this is the first live episode uh, we've recorded. Thanks so much for agreeing to uh, to do it. Thanks so much as well for uh, all the controversial stuff you said at the start. You know, I'll edit that out. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll start just from your choice one beer. Uh, so, you know, you should have been here if you wanted to listen to that. So um, thanks so much. Give it up for James Smith. Now, if anyone has any questions, race down now uh, to the front. Uh, we're happy to... Uh, I didn't discuss this with James. We're happy to... I'm happy to answer... You can ask me questions. Um, if anybody would like to ask a question. Uh, I know, actually, Trev Burke uh, asked, asked, wanted to ask a question about... Um, he's from Bendigo on the Hop. Uh, wanted to ask you a question about 90s house music. Okay. That, that was the question, effectively. Uh, well, 90s house music was kind of a gateway to me, like, you know, sort of a Pacific Air would be for people these days. It was a gateway to hard techno. And I guess that's like anyone's beer journey, you know? You start with a Pacific Ale, you move on to IPA, double IPA, Imperial Stout, Flanders Red, Gerza, which is, I guess, Gerza would be Aphex Twin. Where did the Veronicas fit? Oh, I, I skipped straight to Aphex Twin, I guess. <laughs> um, oh, hey, thanks, Nick. <laughs> All right, up for two reasons. One, I want to hear what my voice actually sounds like on mic. Great. And two, from a man with a finger on his pulse, what's the next buzz style? Are we going to look at more brewed IPAs, or gozers? Is the Nipa going to fade? What's next? Oh, what's, what's next is it's hard to say because, you know... A lot of it doesn't make sense to me. Nipahs are hazy IPAs are here for good. Um, they're not going to be the, the. They almost risk sort of becoming the replacement IPA because it's they're still delivering, in their own way. I think you know what an IPA delivers, just less clarity and bitterness in some cases. Um, I still think we're to see the full. Um, extent of how far how far sour beer will go, and fruited sours that kind of thing. Like I think they have. I don't know. You look at people said cider was going to go massive a few years ago, and it's almost that same kind of thing because they have an appeal to beer lovers, but they have an appeal outside of that, and I think they could go a long way. Whether there's new styles to come along, I don't know. Like the pastry stout dessert beer kind of thing, I can't see that ever going beyond where it is. Like, you don't drink to be left with a heavy sweetness in your mouth, you know. Whether it's, you know, you, you want to have something that refreshing to, to go back to. But, um, you know, people talk about, oh, lagers will make a comeback. I think what we'll find is that everything will find its place. Um, and pale ales will still be the, the leader. And those beers that you can have in volume that aren't too boozy, that you can drink en masse, will still be the leader and everything else will just sort of, you know, find its place. I think what we, what we potentially do miss is, um, you know, hops always takes the headlines. It's malt, and there's a lot of speciality maltsters and, and things happening, people making malts specifically for the beer trade. 
but we kind of yet to sit like a fixation who specialise in IPAs. I mean, I, I'm just saying this for myself. This isn't a trend that's going to happen. It's just basically my dream is being able to go into a brew pub where the focus is on malt heavy. Well, beers actually, my mate Glenn, who is still at uh, Detour, but he's moving away. He's always talked for years about wanting to do a dark beer only brewery, and he says he's going to get it up and running. But um, I, I'd say the thing is, like the market is always going to dictate to an extent. And when you talk about malt, like to make a really great hop forward beer, you still need to understand how to use malt. And the reason that, let's say, Fixations IPA has been winning goals the whole time and they've been kicking goals, that's actually a pretty malty IPA. Same it's, with Pirate Life IPA yeah, was another. Yeah, it, yeah. Has, it has a bigger malt profile than most of them's out there, and that gives it balance. And even, yeah. even the Corbin D, that wouldn't be what it is without the sweetness that's well judged, you know? Um, but bridge bridge but, Road Bling as well. That's another yeah, but whether, very but whether we're going to move into darker beer territory, not in a hurry. Thanks. say <laughs> <laughs> any other questions? Oh, come on, Matt. Thanks, Nick. That was a great question. My question sort of builds on on that is that we've got a lot of breweries, especially you look at the US, where they're adding a lot of fruit and having that blowback of issues with storage. Are we going to reach a place in Australia with breweries just trying to push the boundaries too much that we're going to have blowbacks from stores in terms of storage issues and beers blowing up in store? I, I it's, it's been happening. Um I think it's hopefully being addressed. But a lot of people have been putting fruit in beers that's re-fermenting and cans popping and bottles popping. Um, hopefully, education will happen quick enough. But, I mean, I, I think back to the early, early days I was involved and people would always talk about, oh, once they move to packaging, that will be the challenge. And that is always the challenge, you know. And I think it's, it's one thing making good beer and selling it at your bar or putting a few kegs out there. Um, it's another thing putting it into cans or bottles and understanding how to do it. And um, hopefully there's enough people who care and enough breweries out there talking and enough uh, innate knowledge out there that people are willing to share that it doesn't happen. Because, you know, nobody... people Generally, people who've had cans or bottles pop and explode have handled it pretty well. And there hasn't been one, as far as I'm aware, for a few months, which is nice. Um, but you know you don't want it to become a, a thing I think one of the things trends coming out of America thanks Matt great question um, was is the whole spirits thing breweries making spirits like dogfish um, they, they make their own line of spirits and there definitely is you know Patient Wolf the, the collaboration with Wolf of the Willows mm. there, there is a natural kind of synergy there and, and maybe brewers will you know realise that there is two revenue streams and two markets to open up so maybe it might actually not be the next beer style, it might be the next kind of business model. Uh, well, I think what's interesting from what I can tell from talking from other parts of the booze world is how brewers' willingness to do whatever and to work with whoever and barrel age and throw this whatever is starting to have an impact in a small way, admittedly, on other parts of the booze industry. So winemakers are kind of like, oh, well, why can't we do this? You know, and certainly the craft, you know, craft distilling movement, whatever you want to call it, 
they're, they're very much the mentality of the craft beer industry. So, you know, there is there's more change and more um, experimentation on a wider scale outside of beer as well, I think. And if Australia has one advantage, it's got no tradition to break in terms of spirits well, and no, things? But, well, if we can come back to why I think craft beer sort of was able to sort of grow so fast over here compared to some places, it, it, it's because everything was shit. Like, apart from Cooper's, you, you had no, nothing to, to fight back with. Like, in the UK, it took time because you had real ale. And Camera had got real ale to 30, 35% of the market. And so when craft brewers are trying to come through, there's a bunch of people going, well, yeah, but I've already got Landlord, or I've got Harvest Pale, or I've got, you know, Worky Ticket, or I've got Doombar, whatever. You know, people, people had something that wasn't lager that was good. And in Germany, craft beer hasn't really taken off because, yes, they can offer different flavours, but it's bloody expensive, and you've got awesome lager and Dunkel and Hef- whatever, you know. Um, whereas Australia, you just had really bad lager and Coopers, and so in some ways we've been very lucky. Like there was there was this open goal waiting to be scored into, and not many countries had that. No. Um, you know, America did to an extent, but you know, in some ways Australia should count themselves lucky. Like the whole lucky country, the, the title of that book was ironic because he was saying actually it's fucking awful. Um, but, in, ironically, maybe we were lucky that everything was so bad on the beer front because it gave us this open goal to walk through. Here's to bad beer, James <laughs> from the Crafty Pint. That is a direct quote. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Can we please give Courtney a big round of applause? <laughs> Courtney is amazing. And Full also... Stop. Thank you so much, Burnley, because you have given this space over for all us weirdos with our headphones on. When, look, these people are leaving because of it. So, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, can we thank everyone at Burnley, all, all the staff here as well? And um, Who wants some more McEwen's export? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Shandy has a car out at the front with a bootload full of it. (laughs) Bootleg stuff. So that was it. James Smith, the Crafty Pint, and the first live episode of the Chosen Brew Beer podcast. So big thank you to everybody who showed up. A big thank you as well for those people who didn't show up, who sent messages through, which is really kind. There's so many previous guests of the show who were there on the night as well which i can't tell you uh how much that means as well and thanks so much for that support thanks so much to Stu who took brilliant pictures on the night which i'll put up on instagram uh facebook and at the chosen brew au.com thanks so much to courtney and all of the crew at burnley who made the night possible and all the people involved in getting the beers over to us for the night um including Sean Sherlock from Foghorn Brewing, who managed to get uh, that wonderful young Americans IPA over to us in Melbourne. Uh, The bad thing about saying uh, a list of thank yous is I'm always going to forget somebody, and also it sounds like the worst Oscar speech ever. So I will draw it to a close. i probably just say one more big thank you to all my friends and family, particularly my wife, Emily, and my sister who have been so supportive 
in making this podcast because it does take hours of my life uh, away from family and, and friends um, to make sure that I can get this podcast out to you. So a big thank you uh, for their support and lots of understanding as well. If you weren't able to get along to the live episode, I'm sure there will be more. I'm talking to venues and potential guests as well uh, for 2020. And also, if you're in another part of Australia and you think you would be able to make it happen, then get in touch at thechosenbrewau.com through the contact page or contact me on Instagram twitter or facebook i don't have twitter or facebook on my phone so it may take a little longer uh to get back in touch with you but i will um eventually thanks as well to mickey like stout and jade as well who left five star reviews for the podcast on itunes i really appreciate that support it's your support that allowed the podcast to get to to get into the top five in the iTunes chart in the food category, um, which was very nice kind of to be beaten podcasts from the BBC, um, Heston Blumenthal and Jamie Oliver with a, with a little old beer podcast. So the charts are, are fairly fickle and, and meaningless in the broad scheme of things, but it was pretty nice uh, just to, to see the chosen brew up with the big boys there um if only for a short time but always good to uh enjoy the sun when it's shining so thanks so much for the support and it's amazing to see so many beer podcasts in the top 50 of that chart on itunes and i think the more we have there the more representation the more quality podcasts we have it can only mean one thing which is better beer so don't only give the support to this podcast, but there's plenty of really good beer podcasts being made in Australia. Give them a listen, give them a review, give them support uh, on social media, etc. Um, and we'll all be able to grow the scene together. I will be traveling to regional Victoria for the next episode, which will be a brilliant one to end the year. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you get that in your ears as soon as it drops in mid-December. Thanks so much for your support. Thanks for listening to The Chosen Brew for almost the last three years and hope to catch up with you for a beer soon. See you next time. Welcome to the Chosen Brew Beer Podcast. This is the third birthday party of the Chosen Brew Beer Podcast in Burnley Brewing. And with me is Mr. Crafty Pint himself, James Smith. There was more cheering before. James just saying there was more cheering before means I can't use that. Understandably. <laughs>